Today we're going to continue our um, study through the second half of the book of Isaiah. But before we get into the passage, let me ask you a question. What would you do? How would you respond if someone close to you, a friend or a spouse, comes up to you with a firm, stern look on the face and say, we need to talk, and we need to talk now. I don't know about you, but I think I would leave what I'm doing, and they would have my full attention whether I want it or not because of the way they ask the question. Today's passage is something like that. It's God saying to Israel, we need to talk, and we need to talk now because this is serious. I've already told you that my salvation is coming, and I've told you what it's going to look like in, in chapters 40 to 49. Um, Andrew told us that God's salvation is going to be great. It's going to be a lot bigger than just saving a small group of people from captivity. It's going to be of cosmic dimensions. He's going to fix the ultimate problem separating God and people, sin. It's going to be so big that it's going to restore the entire creation to the way it should be. And then the next section, as Peter took us through it, God told them how he's going to achieve his salvation. It's through his suffering and later glorified servant who is going to come and be crushed to the point of death on behalf of people so he can rejoin them back to God and he will be glorified and his role in saving them is going to be central. After telling them this, God goes, okay, now you know we need to have a chat about you. Because you are in big danger. This great salvation that is coming, that is going to be achieved by my suffering servant, you are in danger of missing out. Because it's no longer like what you think. It's going to be different. And the way you're living now means that you are going to miss out. So we need to have a chat. How about if we pray quickly and ask God to reveal to us and give us insight into his word and what he wants us to do in response. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. And it speaks truth to our lives. It speaks truth of who you are. Father, we pray that we never allow what looks from afar as difficult parts of the Bible to stop us trying to understand. Give us the conviction that when we don't understand, the problem, the problem is not your word, it's us. So we need to go to you and ask for insight and understanding. We pray that you give us an understanding of the kind that makes us want to change and be more like Jesus and be more pleasing to you. In his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing in today's passage, God says, my salvation is coming and it's coming soon, and it's going to include people that you have never, ever expected to be included. This is what God is saying to Israel. I can imagine someone going to their first um, 
synagogue meeting, I guess, back in the year 700 BC, and hearing these words for the first time, the first section that Mark read, uh, that Mike read for us, God is saying, my salvation is coming, and it's going to include foreigners and eunuchs. And someone sitting there would go, hang on a second, wait, 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 did I hear wrong? Did the person reading scripture read it, read it, read it wrong? Foreigners and eunuchs? That's impossible. And the reason they would think this is impossible is this. Throughout their entire history, Israel has been told to stay away from foreigners. Do not mix with them. Do not befriend them. Do not pick up their customs. Most importantly, do not worship their gods. Israel understood this to mean God loves us and hates them. God blesses us and curses them. God will include us and exclude them. A very wrong understanding. Just a a side point, uh, not a part of today's talk, but the purpose of separation was that the people of Israel will be so fiercely loyal to Yahweh that other nations would look at them and think how great Yahweh is we want to follow him too that was the purpose of the separation but a side point they understood that foreigners are not a part of God's promise less commonly known eunuchs but in the mind of the people of Israel. That's a big thing for God to say, eunuchs are included in my salvation. If you go back to Deuteronomy uh, 23, you'll see that eunuchs were not allowed under any circumstances to join the assembly. And joining the assembly might to us sound like a short sentence, they don't join the assembly. This was massive. Not joining the assembly means that they cannot join in corporate worship. And worship was corporate. They were not able to offer sacrifice the way they should. They wouldn't be able to celebrate the feasts the way they should be celebrated. For all intents and purposes, they would be losing everything that defines them as members of the people of God. They are on the outside. They are not allowed to join the assembly. They are not a part of God's people. So for God to say, my salvation is coming, is going to be great. And it's going to include foreigners and eunuchs. And just in case that person who's at the synagogue for the first time didn't hear it well, it's repeated four times. Foreigners, eunuchs, eunuchs, foreigners. Four times. It's there for a reason. But there's something else that is repeated four times. God just doesn't say... Foreigners, all foreigners. Eunuchs, all eunuchs. There's a short phrase there that is very key to understanding today's entire passage. God says, my salvation is coming, and foreigners and eunuchs, I'm combining all all the references, who bind themselves to the Lord, who hold fast to his covenant. These are the ones who are going to come in. In summary, what God is saying is, my salvation is going to look very different 
to what you expect. You think it's going to be divided along the line of ancestry. You are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others are not. I'm telling you that the criteria are changing. The line is changing. My salvation is coming. Some will be included and some will not. But this has nothing to do with your family history. It will have nothing to do with your personal attributes. It will have to do with one thing. Binding yourself to the Lord and holding fast to his covenant. And this is why, Israel, we need to have a serious conversation because you are not binding yourself to the Lord and you are not holding fast to his covenant and you are going to miss out. God is having this one-on-one conversation with Israel. The next thing that he says is very painful to them, is very confronting. He tells them the truth about themselves. And he tells it in a very harsh, confronting, strong way. In two very long sections, about two and a half chapters of the four chapters that we're looking at today, God goes through the details of how sin has infiltrated and settled and became a part of the people of Israel. I was thinking maybe I'll get Mike to read the two and a half chapters, but then I thought maybe not. Very lengthy. Why would God extend such part of the conversation? Why is he so harsh to them? He tells them things like, I've made a list. Let let me find it. He says this. This is the summary of two and a half chapters. Your leaders are corrupt, selfish. They don't care what happens to the flock. Righteous and devout people are becoming more and more rare amongst you in your community, and you don't care. You are the children of adulterers and prostitutes. He's referring to them prostituting themselves to worshipping other gods. You are a brood of rebels, a brood of liars. You are a bunch of hypocrites. Your worship is only a pretense, void of meaning. You are rebellious. You have forsaken me. You are self-deluded. You've been lying for so long that you've believed your own lies And you're wondering why God is not answering our prayers. And this is the summary. I've uh, I've tried to put the, the passages on the handout if you're interested to read the details later. It is harsh. It is very strong. The words that God says, the words that God uses for these to, to describe the sin that they have in in their lives to them. God is putting a mirror in front of their face so they can see the truth about their life and the way they've been living. 
it's very important to understand why God is doing this. He's not doing this because he is cruel to them. He's not doing this because he has some personal vendetta against them. Surprisingly enough, he's doing this because he loves them. You see, Israel at this stage was in spiritual coma. They have lost connection. They are so lost that to wake them up, to bring them back, God needs to use this language. There's nothing else that's going to work. God wants them saved. God wants them to be a part of his coming salvation. But this is the only way. This is the loving way, even though it's very, very harsh. Israel looks like they're in um, spiritual cardiac arrest. And these harsh words are God's defib. There has to be an electric current going through their hearts so they might come back. It's a harsh but loving truth. How do I know this? Why, why am I saying it's loving? Because in between the two lengthy, harsh descriptions of what they are like and their betrayal to Yahweh, there's a very short section in 57, 14 to 21. Very short, it's like a sandwich. Very subtle, where God talks about what he really wants from them. He doesn't talk to them harshly because he wants to cause them pain. He talks them har- to them harshly because they want, he wants them to turn around. And he gives them what he wants. Um, Fifty-seven, fifteen would be a very good summary for this section. The section that proves that God is dealing with them in this way because of loving them, not because of anything else. For this is what the high and exalted one says. I live in a high and holy place. So there's no compromise on God's holiness. There's no compromise on his glory. I am who I am. I am high and exalted. And no one can reach me. But also, as in also live with, also live also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. This is what God wants from them. To be contrite and lowly in spirit. Instead of self-righteousness and being proud and arrogant and thinking that they are fasting and praying and by doing this, they're doing God a big favor, he wants contrite and lowly spirit. And when I I was thinking, how how do I explain contrite and, and lowly in spirit? I thought this... There's nothing better than the explanation that Jesus gave. Remember the story of the two men going up to the temple to pray? One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee goes on a long speech of how great he is, how obedient he is. He's thanking God that he is not as bad as other people, the evil 
uh, doers, while the tax collector is so ashamed that he couldn't even look up. And he says one sentence. God have mercy on me, a sinner. This second guy, the tax collector, is contrite and lowly in spirit. This is what God is looking for. This is why he's, he's using this strong language to make them realize and see the sin. To experience the sorrow and misery and weight that comes to anyone who realizes the truthfulness of the sin. When they see the sin truly from God's perspective, it is almost crushing. And this is what God wants. He wants them to realize what's going on, to snap back. He wants to revive their hearts. And that's why he speaks to them in this way. So far in the conversation between uh, God and Israel, he's doing all the talking. He's telling them about him in sentences that starts with I. He's telling them about themselves or talking about them in sentences that starts with you or they. But then something great happens. Israel contributes to the conversation. After about three and a half chapters of saying nothing, in 59 verse 9, the second part that Mike read for us, we find the first us and we. Israel listens. Israel wakes up. Israel, in a nutshell, say to God, yes, everything that you have said about us is true. This is the reality of our lives. This is the reality of who we are. We are sinful. We're blind. We're living in darkness. We have no idea where we're going. We are rebellious and turning our backs on you. We are a bunch of liars and pretenders. And then they say nothing more. There's nothing like, oh, tomorrow we'll try to be better. There's nothing like, okay, New Year's resolution, more obedience. There's nothing. They recognize the sin. They can see the disease, but they also know that they don't have a treatment. They acknowledge what God has said about them. They know the problem, but they know that they don't have a way to fix it. They don't say anything more. God, you are correct. And that's it. It is almost a moment of despair. Because, yes, we know. Yes, we are now experiencing the sorrow that comes from understanding our sin. But we can't do anything about it. It's a moment of hopelessness. But the great thing is, God does what he always does 
when people are desperate. God does what he always does when people are hopeless in the face of sin. He intervenes. He looks down and goes, this is a sad situation. There's no one to intervene. So I will intervene. I will put on my armory and I'll fight for them. I'll fight the evil. I'll fight the sin. But more importantly, I will redeem. Have a look at 59:20. The redeemer will come from the redeemer will come to Zion. Zion in Isaiah usually refers to Jerusalem. To those in Jacob. To everyone in Jacob? No. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. He will send a redeemer. And it's a great thing that we don't have to think too much about who the redeemer is. Just because Peter told us last week. That was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) The redeemer is Jesus. We don't need to think long and hard who the redeemer is. And he does come. And he does redeem. And he does does everything that is promised in Isaiah. The great news is we don't have to look at Isaiah as a future expectation. Isaiah is no longer a future expectation. It's a present reality. The redeemer has come. And he has brought and fulfilled every promise in the Old Testament to come true. If you just cast your minds quickly to the New Testament, who is the number one group that Jesus spoke harshly to? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the self-righteous, Exactly like what God does in Isaiah, Jesus does when he comes. He tells them the truth about themselves. Not because he doesn't like them. Not because he has a personal vendetta against them. It's because he loves them. And they are in the same kind of spiritual coma that the people in Isaiah were. And he, he wants their hearts revived. And there's no other way. He tells them the truth about themselves. And if you look into the descriptions that Jesus used to confront the self-righteous religious leaders of his time, he uses the same vocabulary as Isaiah. He calls them brood of vipers, adulterers, and so on. The exact same vocabulary for the exact same reason. It is true, but it's loving. How do I know it's loving? Have a look at Nicodemus in John 3. He is a religious leader. He is not just a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the high council. You cannot be higher than that. But he comes to Jesus humbly, hesitant, having questions with no answers. 
recognizing that Jesus is the one that has the answers, not him. His religious zeal and superiority don't count too much anymore. He comes asking questions. Jesus was not harsh to him, quite the opposite. He helped him understand what things are like in the kingdom of God. Did Jesus invite foreigners into the, into the kingdom? Yes, he did, many times. We don't need to go far from John 3, just turn the page, John 4. The Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman is, belongs to a group that Jews were not dealing with, it, were not allowed to talk to. Jesus goes to her and has a conversation that leads to her recognizing her own sin, recognizing him as the Messiah, and her entire Samaritan, between brackets, foreign village, recognize him as the Messiah as well. Jesus makes everything that was a future prediction in Isaiah a present reality. He is the redeemer and the fulfiller. There's a lot in Isaiah 56 to 59 about keeping the Sabbath. We didn't go into the details because of time. But Jesus comes and defines what keeping the Sabbath is. It's no longer about ritual. It's about loving and honoring God and loving others. Jesus explains Isaiah. To understand Isaiah, we look at Jesus. Then we understand Isaiah. Jesus fulfilled and made a present reality everything in Isaiah by the way he lived, by the way he taught. But there's nothing more that does that than the cross and the resurrection. In Isaiah, God is saying, people who bind themselves to me, who hold fast to my covenant, will be a part of my salvation. On the cross, Jesus establishes the, co the covenant. He makes it a reality by his blood. This is the covenant that people are to hold fast to. By dying on the cross, Jesus fulfills the biggest, most important part of him redeeming his people. He gives them the covenant to hold fast to. And by doing that, he establishes the line that on one side, people will be included in God's salvation if they hold fast to Lord Jesus and to his covenant. And on the other side, if they don't, they will not be included in God's coming salvation. The apostles understood this really well. So after the resurrection, they went everywhere. They went to Samaria, the same as Jesus did, a foreigner's place. And the gospel, the message about Jesus was preached and accepted. And Samaria embraced the gospel. Peter, 
initially reluctantly, but eventually went to Cornelius. You cannot be more foreign than Cornelius. He's a Roman, so absolutely foreigner officer. So he is the enemy of the people. He's the oppressor, militarily at least. But Peter goes to him. The gospel is preached. And if you read the story, Cornelius and his household believe the gospel and trust Jesus before Peter even finishes what he's talking about. He doesn't even finish the whole thing. And Peter says um, something very interesting when he's reporting back to the church in Jerusalem. Um, He says, I will find it. Because I want to read it exactly as it is. Peter says this about foreigners, Cornelius, the enemy, accepting the gospel. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I? To think that I could stand in God's way. Peter is basically saying the doors have been open wide. No one can stand in God's way. God's salvation has come. It is no longer a future expectation. And God is accepting anyone and everyone who holds fast, who holds, who binds themselves to the Lord Jesus and holds fast to his covenant. Uh, Paul's entire ministry, every town, every city he goes into, he goes to the, to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, between brackets, foreigners. Why? Because he knows that God's promise is for everyone. God is gathering everyone to himself. Many Stories, many events in the New Testament shows us, shows us that Jesus is the true fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. And people need to hold fast to the Lord Jesus. But one in specific I want to look at into a, a slightly more detail. It's, it's a story that many of you would be familiar with. Peter touched on it last week a little bit, but I want us to read it in light of Isaiah 56 to 59. If you you please go to um, Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 26. Acts 8, 26, and just run your eyes quickly on the story. Um, Philip, one of the early disciples is given a direct instruction by an angel of the Lord to go to a specific road, um, the desert road. I'm sure he knew which road. I, I don't, but the desert road. And he meets an, um, an Ethiopian official. Can you 
see something about the Ethiopian official? Before we get into the something, he's Ethiopian. Um, the, the text doesn't tell us definitely that he is a foreigner. He might be a foreigner. He's probably a God-fearer because he's reading scripture. Um, this group of people who were not Jews by descent, but they um, really affiliated themselves with worshipping Yahweh. Most likely a foreigner. Is there something else you notice about this guy? He's a foreigner and a, a eunuch. He's a foreigner and a eunuch. This foreigner eunuch is reading which book? Isaiah. Which chapter? It doesn't say which chapter, but in the footnotes it will have reference to the, to the section he's reading. He's reading Isaiah 53. He's reading this foreign eunuch. Is reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand it. And he asks Philip, what is this about? What is, what is the prophet talking about? Who is this person? So Philip starts with Isaiah. Not to explain Isaiah in itself. But he starts with Isaiah and explains the gospel. The good news about Jesus. That Jesus is the Redeemer. And the guy hears the message, embraces the gospel, believes and trusts Jesus Christ, and gets baptized. Do you know what this guy was doing when he believed the gospel? He was binding himself to the Lord Jesus and holding fast to his covenant. The, the future expectation of Isaiah was becoming true in this life, in this guy's life. This is where the story ends, but I can only imagine after Philip disappears and this guy goes back to his chariot and keeps reading through Isaiah. He goes through Isaiah 54, 55, gets to 56, and reads God 700 years ago is promising that even eunuchs and foreigners, those who are completely out, will be all the way in. He would look at it and think, this is me. This has just happened to me. And you know what? Reading Isaiah from a gospel perspective means that we can all say the same thing. When we look at Isaiah, we can all say, this is me. Because all of us, in one way or another, we're far. We're out. We're not expected to be included in God's salvation. Isaiah 56 to 59 doesn't have to be this Old Testament hard-to-understand passage. It has something for every single person. It has something to say for a person who has known the Lord for a long time. It's a, when you read Isaiah 56 to, to, to 59, it's a reason to rejoice, to be happy that you're included. But it's also a word of warning that no matter what you do, 
that doesn't make you more qualified. It's only because you're bound to the Lord Jesus that you're in. It's a word of warning, reminder, not to be too excited about stuff that we do, but be really excited that the covenant that Jesus established with his blood is the reason we're in. For a person who feels that they are, there's something in them that makes it impossible to be a part of God's people, Isaiah 56 to 59 still speaks to them. And the message is very clear. This thinking is wrong. There's nothing about you that God cannot deal with. What needs to happen is for you to change the way you're thinking and think that it's about Jesus and what he did. And he's welcome to everyone who binds himself to him. Isaiah 56 to 59 also speaks to a person who's known the Lord a while ago, but for some reason allowed sin to come in and take hold and infiltrate. And they've lost track between what's godly and what's worldly. Isaiah 56 to 59 is a wake-up call. Be encouraged to look into the mirror of God's word. It's going to be harsh and painful. But this is the way God loves, by telling us the truth. I think there can be many applications from Isaiah 56 to 59. But the main point is one. God opens the doors for everyone. All what we need to do, no matter who we are, no matter what place we're in, is to bind ourselves to the Lord Jesus and hold fast to the covenant that he has established. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you give us humbleness and understanding, but above all, an eagerness to bind ourselves to the Lord Jesus and to hold really fast to his covenant. In his name we pray. Amen.